from Kurtco Media. When you say the word Jeep, hopefully the vehicle that comes to mind is this little humble thing. We call it Wrangler today, but that is something that we hold on to very tightly. That was the voice of Mark Allen, our guest today on Cars That Matter. This is Cars That Matter. This is Robert Ross with another episode of Cars That Matter. Welcome to my guest, Mark Allen, Director, Head of Design for Jeep. Mark, it's great to have you here. Thank you. I'm excited. I appreciate your joining us, especially because so much is happening with Jeep right now in the here and now with some new models and a whole lot of success. I understand more success than the brand has ever had. But I guess really when it comes to Jeep, we should probably start at the beginning. We're going to talk Jeep today and there's so much to talk about, but starting with some history. Talk about a storied history. The story of Jeep started around 1940, right before it was even called a Jeep. And it was about a little car that kind of came in at the last minute to support America as it geared up for the war effort. And with no time to spare, it would eventually help win the war. So that's really an underdog story, isn't it? Humble (laughs) beginnings. Funnily enough, with companies that, well, I guess people remember one of them because they're still around. It's called Ford. But then there was another called Bantam and another one called Willis. Yes. They were all trying to win a contract to build this little mechanical mule that was like the price of a lawnmower and probably not much more sophisticated. I have a great image that I use frequently when I do presentations. It's of an army mule and strapped to it is what appears to be a how it's and that's really the situation they were in they just reached the end and they needed this little car to shoulder the load i mean it was replacement for a horse or a mule and that's really where our story begins i gotta stress it was never set up to be a brand we weren't supposed to be a commercial vehicle we were just there to solve a problem that was happening and then after the war things went on and the soldiers found that these vehicles were very useful they were marketed mostly to farmers after the war It's a really cool beginning. I'd heard that it was designed to actually replace the mule as a mechanical beast of burden, but the idea of a quadruped with a howitzer strapped to its back is pretty damn funny, especially because it might decide not to move. It might decide it didn't want it to go backward instead of forward. But I guess the Jeep was a little more reliable than that. Took instructions well, I think, yeah. Funny thing is, when you think about the three manufacturers who were involved in designing this first so-called Jeep, it really wasn't even called a Jeep. So let's get the first official question out of the way. What does Jeep mean and where'd the name come from? Everybody has a theory. What's yours? I'll give you my perspective on it. And there are a couple different theories. One being, of course, it was a general purpose vehicle. And in army speak, GP just got shortened into Jeep. And there was also this cartoon. If you remember Popeye, there was a character in the Popeye comics. His name was Eugene the Jeep, spelled J-E-E-P. And he was a bit mystical and could wander through walls and go places others couldn't. Both of those fit. I don't know what the answer is. Honestly, I hope we never find out because I like the mystery. <laughs> I think it's I think it's just unique and cool. It can be whatever you wish it to be. No one's going to pin you down on it. That's a great explanation and probably the best one I'd heard. I knew about the initials GP. I forgot about Popeye. You know, it's funny. When I think about Jeep, the word that comes to mind for me is authentic. First of all, authentic is a highly overused word today. And in today's world where the spin and alternate truths are acknowledged as fact, something like a Jeep sort of stands out as a refreshing and unpretentious outlier. It is what it is. And when you say the word Jeep, 
hopefully the vehicle that comes to mind is this little humble thing. We call it Wrangler today. We changed the name at some point, but that is something that we hold on to very tightly. For instance, we use this little cartoon now. It's a profile of a 1941 flat fender military Jeep. We've been using it more and more as a, a logo. In fact, it may show up in places where we put the word Jeep on the vehicle now. It's just that it's such a worldwide recognizable thing. And I reflect on that a lot because when you say Jeep, that's the vehicle that we want to come to mind. And it's, again, our little humble beginnings. What other brand could do something like that? You wouldn't put a Beetle on a Passat or something like that. You may put a 911 on a Cayman maybe, but that's was like their second car even, the 911. Although we are a monster brand, we're a monster worldwide brand, honestly. People seem to think we're a very accessible, super easy to relate to automotive brand. I like that. That really speaks to the authenticity and the fact that you can actually create an icon that's essentially a one-image hieroglyph that encompasses the entire mark. Wow, what a brilliant and fortunate move. I mean, it's very fortuitous, but it didn't come without a whole lot of history sort of backing it up. I think maybe some of what you're talking about is getting at what Jeep symbolizes to people. It does symbolize that original CJ5, I guess, in a lot of ways, the one that kind of came around in the mid-50s. Is that sort of where it really started once this became a commercial product that people could go out and buy? It actually started even before that. Immediately after the war, they started selling Jeeps commercially. They were not really different than the military spec Jeep. They had to do a few things to federalize them. Notably, they got their bigger headlights and a seven-slot grill. But again, they were marketed heavily as an agricultural thing or an alternative, like their third car. They were marketed as a primary thing. And then shortly after that, they started to expand a little bit and created pickup trucks and SUVs and things like that that had modern features like doors and heaters and <laughs> crazy like that. But the little CJ, what you're talking about, and that's what they call it, CJ was shorthand for civilian Jeep. It kept going. And it was not changed very frequently, even in the body style that went for a long, long time as just a kind of a third little car. In fact, I'd heard before we started doing the four-door Wrangler, the JK in 07, that for the longest time, the vehicle that the Wrangler was shopped against most was a speedboat, being that it was the third vehicle in the family. And It was never a giant seller until we started adding the four doors to it, but it was always kind of in the background, but it was kept in the lineup because it was so core and so important to the line. And we keep it now when we draw a picture of all the universe of Jeeps, all available vehicles, the Wrangler is always right in the middle because that is the core. And then everything that we make has a piece of that car into it. Let's talk about design for a while because obviously that's the hat you're wearing. You are the head of design. and Damn lucky to have this job. It's a job that comes with some responsibility, though, because I guess you're so indebted to the past or dealing with a brand that's so informed by its past. My first question is, do you have to hold yourself back, you and your team? Uh, Are you afraid that some of the magic might be lost if you go a little too far out? Or what kind of latitude can you take vis-a-vis the Wrangler? And then, of course, as regards new developments, too. And we'll talk about some of those in the future specifically. Really, the Wrangler shoulders the heavy load on the historical side. And it can move around, swim around in its lane. And I'm not too worried about that. The other vehicles, we always sprinkle in a little bit of history, but try not to be overburdened by that. For instance, we just finished up the Grand Cherokee renewal. And I think that's the fifth generation of Grand Cherokee. It's more beholden to 
Grand Cherokee as a past, or even before that, the Wagoneer. We try to put a little bit in there, but not, you know, I never want to be retro. Wrangler, I never consider retro because it never left. I admire 911. I bring them up all the time because I think they've done a really good job of cultivating that style of vehicle. It's an immediately recognizable shape. And we do the same thing with Wrangler. We try to keep that in line. But the rest of the vehicles, not so much. And we're growing. We're growing on the top. We're growing on the bottom. We're growing in different regions. We have vehicles now that we sell only in China. or We have stuff in South America. We only sell there. That kind of trend is going to continue as we grow around the world. And it's been a rapid growth. We're still learning. I would say it, that's the best word I can come up with. Learning how to be a global brand because it's something that's happened to us very quickly. Does America still constitute your most substantial market in terms of volume and number of owners? Depends on the vehicle, certainly for Wrangler or the larger Grand Cherokees, that kind of a thing, where say in Western Europe, they'll go for a D segment or smaller sort of a vehicle. China, just like everybody else, we're still trying to figure China out, but uh, it depends heavily on the region where we're going. The magic of the brand somehow, Jeep, is it is known worldwide. I can go into nearly any market in the world that I'm not in and say my name. They know who I am and what I do. Contrast that to when I first started at Chrysler in 94 and we were trying to sell Dodges in Germany (laughs) and Chrysler's in France and stuff like that. It turns out Lee Iacocca, when he bought Jeep and he was the guy I would credit with bringing that into the fold, he saw that somehow. It's that worldwide name recognition. But of course, we were focused on cars and minivans and things at the time. We now, Jeep is solidly our international brand. I've heard you say before that, read in in some of your interviews, that the original Jeep was never really even designed at all. So here all of a sudden you're you're in charge of designing something that was never designed. And you mentioned that seven slot grill, how it's become sort of an iconic thing. Give us a little bit of insight, or if you can, walk us through the the process almost. It depends heavily on the vehicle that we're talking about. The design of it, it's a complex thing, I guess, but the word we use most often is character or feel of the vehicle. And that speaks to us, especially when we're doing early sketches of something, and it doesn't matter what the vehicle project is that day. We're taking a clay outside and looking at it, and that's a very important step for us to do it. We do it as frequent as possible. And just talk with the designers in the group about how the car feels. That may seem like a really strange thing to talk about, like it's an inanimate object, how can it feel? But it starts to talk to you a little bit, and it's really telling you about muscle and shape and weight management. The other thing we use a lot is weight management. It's just moving things around on the vehicle to get it to feel like a Jeep. And a Jeep always has this off-road feel to it. It needs to have chunky wheel openings. It needs to have good approach, departure angle, good body geometry for off-road, whether it's going off-road or not. In our mind, it is. That's the number one thing. When we talk about the finite details of what is going to be the face of the vehicle or some of the details we'll talk about wheel openings, of course, we'll always have trapezoidal wheel openings, which come from that flat fender Jeep in 1941. The seven slot grill, that's something that's just not even ever going to be debated while I'm there anyway, (laughs) that it will have a seven slot grill. And that's all we say. We don't say they need to be this big or this round or this square or decorated, however, just that it's there. And those are like the two elements that we'll never mess with, at least while I'm around it. But they can be interpreted in several different ways. That just 
gives us a little bit of familiarity from one vehicle to the next without trying to reinvent it all the time. The rest of it is up for debate. For instance, a section can be too soft or too doughy on a vehicle. I'll always tighten it up a little bit, put some muscle into it. And that to me just feels more like a Jeep. When you're talking about the early flat fender Jeep, your comment about, I say it wasn't designed and and it absolutely wasn't. It was put together in a big hurry. The face of it even swam around it a bit. But again, it was not meant to be a brand. It wasn't meant to be a commercial vehicle. It was just there to solve a problem. It was the second vehicle, the M38A1, which also became the CJ5. That vehicle to me, and I have no proof of this, but that to me was designed. Somebody sketched it out. They did some clay work on it. It got some section in the hood. The face was designed around the seven slots. And that is always my favorite vehicle. I think the CJ5 is just, for me, all the clues are there. I'm thinking about some of the conversations I've had with Rolls-Royce designers, and maybe the two most antipodal vehicles imaginable, a Rolls-Royce and a Jeep, are faced with precisely the same design challenges in the hands of a competent and thoughtful designer. How do you preserve an essential aspect of a design and yet carry it forward into the future? We'll always play with the proportions of the seven-slot grill. At some point in the 90s, they started, on the Grand Cherokees, they started fanning the grill out. That's when it started to go sideways for me. I won't allow that to happen anymore where they fan the grill out. Maybe it's a perfect time to segue into that new Grand Wagoneer, which I understand is the hottest topic in Jeep territory these days. It just came out. It's the first time there's been one in a couple of decades, I guess. Tell us the story of the Grand Wagoneer and what that's going to do for you guys. We have toyed with, I'll call that a full-size, large SUV. You can even use the word luxury if you want, because apparently that's what these things are supposed to be these days. And you were leaving money on the table, weren't you? Yeah, we've been in and out of that project nearly my whole career and on different brands. Dodge played with that for a while, and then what became Ram, Jeep, in and out of it. And then when Sergio came on the scene, I think his second sentence he used when he was, you know, at his first press conference, he mentioned Wagoneer right away. And it still took us quite a while to come around to doing it. We struggled with the size, didn't really know how big we wanted it to be. But you got to remember at that time, the dead end for Jeep was Grand Cherokee. And Grand Cherokee was the biggest vehicle that we had. There was a desire to do something larger. And if you remember the Commander back in the day where they took the Grand Cherokee and squeezed a third row seat in it. Was it the most beautiful thing I think that ever came out of Jeep's design studios? But we knew that there was a customer there. In fact, for the longest time, the commander was our highest household income buyer. So we knew the desire was there. The first time I ever worked on a vehicle that we didn't have anything on paper, but we knew what it was going to be called. <laughs> we had the name that was given to us. Often, and, and it's comical, you may not know this, but a little inside, we get vehicles done. We're all done with the vehicle and everything is ready except for the name of the car that comes just hours sometimes before we launch it. No kidding. And guess what? Those names are probably as good as any. Oh, yeah. But there's been a couple really, really close calls. Back to Wagoneer, we finally settled in on it and the roots of it are Ram truck based, the front half of the chassis. The rear is unique. As you know, it has a independent rear end, but that really set the size up and the target is really the products out of General Motors and Ford. Full size American luxury UVs. I've got a good friend who, he's a suburban guy, just buys Suburbans after Suburbans. They get a lot of repeat customers, don't they? They go out of lease and a guy goes down and gets a new one because they're big and they're bold and they don't break and they're great. Once your life demands that you need a 
urban, you can't go anywhere else, right? <laughs> and right now, they're really popular. Every time we launched into one of these projects before, gas would go up 50 cents and we'd stop. At some point, gas hit four bucks a gallon, even higher than that. My point is we've been dancing around this for a while. We finally committed to it. And I think we've got a pretty unique answer. It's not a really crowded market. It's a highly profitable market. Like I said, we're going to finally add to the top end of Jeep in a couple different ways. We have the new Grand Cherokee coming, but we just showed the Grand Cherokee L, which is a longer Grand Cherokee derivative, has a three row. And then of course, the Wagoneer will take it from there on the top end. So it'll have great towing, great road presence, Jeep capabilities to it. Very luxurious. We'll be able to really option the vehicle up inside, especially. You've got that great Macintosh sound system. We had a chance to talk to Charlie Randall a while back, and he was enthusiastic about it because I guess he grew up with Grand Wagoneers in the family. There's a real, again, more authenticity. Man, you can't make that stuff up. It's either true or it's not. And Wagoneer is a beloved vehicle beyond even the off-road world. There, We built one a couple years ago. It was a resto mod. We built it for Moab. And we took a, I think it was a 16 eight Wagoneer and we resto modded it with a new powertrain and stuff. But the most remarkable thing about that vehicle was the stories that we got. Everybody who walked up to me and talked to me that about that vehicle had a story about an aunt or an uncle yeah. or grandpa or lake house and there was that, that car there every hallmark channel movie has got a wagoneer in it it's just crazy that vehicle stirs up some really good memories there was nothing ever bad about it, it was always good we'll be back in just a moment here on cars that matter on medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co. Media. Welcome back to Cars That Matter. Let's pick up where we left off. Wrangler finally has a good competitor on the scene with the arrival of Bronco, and we welcome that. That's an interesting conversation. So we're always going to see a Wrangler, and now that there's some competition from Bronco, there's actually an opportunity to kind of expand the audience, because more people that are interested mean more potential Jeep customers, too. That's the way I see it. Not everybody does, but that's fine. I applaud Bronco. I think they did their homework. I still prefer ours, but that's me. But it's exciting to see that space that we've had, mostly to ourselves for a long, long time. I hear rumors of others sniffing around that. What most people miss on a Wrangler is they think that it's just for bashing through the woods or crawling over rocks and stuff. And there's a whole subset of people who they're very attracted to Wrangler. And I don't, I can't explain exactly why, but they like the erector set Lego aspect of it when they can pull the doors off and the roof and that. They may never, ever turn a wheel into dirt and it doesn't matter. I'm just like, I'm never going to put my Porsche on a racetrack, but I still enjoy the car. Right. Right. Uh, that space. And for the longest time, Wrangler was sold as a cheap convertible, right? Although no longer entry level cheap, still always a convertible. In fact, the Gladiator is always a convertible as well. And what we'll see here very soon in Michigan anyways, as soon as the weather turns nice, two things happen. The motorcycles come out of the garage and doors come off of Jeeps. And that aspect, taking the doors off, sounds counterintuitive. Most people would say, why would you do that? They would only say that if they've never tried it. You hear all the time, convertibles, the market is dead, but we sell hundreds of thousands of them a year. It's just that it's morphed, it's changed. For the longest time, I didn't understand that side of Wrangler, but I get it more now. We've got, I've got people that tell me all the time, like how much they love their Jeep and they love customizing or modernizing or, and it could be they're just doing 
they're putting some minor aftermarket thing on their vehicle, but it makes it their own vehicle. And they've got a special color and they may have a name for it. And I love that. I really do. People tell me all the time they've got, you know, a name for their vehicle. Boy, it's almost like Harley Davidson. You start with a basic bike and then all of a sudden you take everything off and make it your own. It's not almost like Harley Davidson. It's it's very much like <laughs> I sell more t-shirts than we do, but uh, yeah. That's right. That's right. Very similar. And highly female. Uh, a lot of female buyers for Wrangler, more than you might think. And that's not something that's fully evident up front. It, it feels like it's a real macho kind of a vehicle, and it's not. The four-door brought that all to us. And I got to thank the Germans. They're the ones that brought the four-door. I'm here to lay down my bet that only about one out of a hundred Range Rovers ever do anything more than kiss a curb on Rodeo Drive. These cars don't go off-road. All the great G-Wagons, as fantastic as those Mercedes vehicles are, they're not going off-road because most of the buyers don't do that. But your buyers actually take these things where they're made to thrive. I hope they do. They paid for the <laughs> they paid for the equipment. But it depends on your definition of off-road. If off-road is I want to go skiing this weekend and not have to worry about chaining up or anything. I was just out in Colorado last week and the rule is if you got four-wheel drive and all season tires, you're fine. You don't need to chain up. That's off-road capability right there. And I would imagine G Wagons and, and Range Rovers, they take advantage of that. The confidence of hey, can I get through this muddy portion of field through a little creek or stream or something like that, that is luxury to be able to do that mm -hmm. confidently. But are they going to be bashing it through a, a mud hole or over a rock pile in Moab? I, I doubt that. We make better vehicles to do that kind of activity. But the off-road portion is really just the confidence that we, I can get through there neatly. We keep adjusting how you do that on the way the controls are laid out, select the mode, and it's less work than you have to do. You don't have to get out and lock the hubs or anything like that anymore. You should be able to just select where you're going to go and, and use that. Not like it used to be. Well, no. <laughs> and a lot of things have gotten better beyond just the four-wheel drive, the systems that we have, the tire technology that's available nowadays. If you remember the old days, tires were pretty, pretty poor. Tire technology still amazes me. The, the one thing I wish they would be able to do with tires is get them quieter. Tire noise just drives me crazy. Well, that's a very interesting point because the more off-road they are, the more likely they are to not be the most comfortable thing on the highway. But you have to give a little something up there. That's true. I guess it's probably a good time to ask you questions you're not allowed to answer. And that's about new chapters in the Jeep history that's about to be written. Where are we going? I mean, everybody He's talking about electric vehicles and all the new tech developments. Can you give us any insight there? I can give you opinions. That's even better. There will be electric powertrains in our future. It's not a question of does the technology exist? It does, obviously. Can we make it work the way we want it to do? I think, yeah. The changeover, getting there, is the hard part for us because we are a large-scale manufacturer and battery technology, not the technology, but just the charging stations, etc., are not quite where they want to be yet. I am of the opinion that the gas companies need to just become energy companies. They've got the property and the locations to charge up. I'm frustrated by different cars needing different chargers and adapters. Right, it's like the old VHS versus beta wars. Somehow we managed to standardize the 
the hole that I put the gas in worldwide, but I have a different plug in China than I have in the U.S. But that will get sorted out. The larger the vehicle, the larger the energy demand, that gets tricky. If I've got to tow something, that gets tricky. As far as a smaller vehicle, it's like the D segment size is the most logical to electrify at the moment. D segment is, we classify vehicles. My size A, B, C, D, and a D currently is a Cherokee size. A Grand Cherokee is the next size up that is an E. So a D segment kind of makes the most sense for energy on board versus aerodynamics and cargo capacity. That's the most popular at the moment, but I also believe that there's so much money and R&D being put into electric right now more than ever. It's still a storage and cost issue. But I think we're going to get there. Remember, floppy disks went to chips, to micro SDs. I think a similar thing is going to happen. Not that radical, but it's pretty amazing where these technologies have gone. Just the screen I'm looking at now used to be a big, thick CRT. Batteries will get smaller. They will get cheaper. They will have more range to them. And range seems to be the thing everybody's trained to ask about, range and charging times. And probably 300-ish miles range is the most acceptable thing for, for most people. And charging within a reasonable amount of time would be half hour or 20 minutes or so. Just a few years ago, I live in Michigan and I couldn't make it to the top end of the state in a Tesla in less than two days. Now it's an easy thing to do in a day. So that's pretty rapid change. I see that continuing as more more and more people are going to electricity. It's going to be an avalanche at some point. It's not quite yet, but the planning is, is certainly underway. That's interesting you say avalanche. You're actually the first guy I've talked to who's used that term, but I can imagine that things really do kind of spool up exponentially as people come on board. So I guess really it begs the question, will the consumer have a choice even? It sounds like it's a fait accompli. A consumer's going to have to have a choice for a while just because, I mean, we still have pieces of the state where we don't have internet. You're not going to plug in out in Moab, are you? There's still a lot of rural America that there's not a plug-in station. That infrastructure will happen. And and again, certainly you're not going to tow a horse trailer full of horses with a battery anytime soon. That kind of a thing. There's going to be a mix. And gas is still like, what, two and a quarter a gallon or something like that. That's the other thing that tugs at us. I'm living in the wrong state, man, because I think we're paying close to four here in Los Angeles. But short answer, yeah, it's going to happen. When's it going to happen? Don't know yet. But everybody's got their finger on the trigger right now, but it's not going to be a full changeover in the next year. You've got another interesting car. we got to talk about this before we move on to the next part of the program. Your Gladiator. I am a real fan. And of course, I've got a story because I see a Gladiator every day when my business partner comes into the office. Now, here's a guy who jumped ship from a Maserati Levante to a Gladiator. He is the happiest with that car that I've ever seen him. He loves his Gladiator. He loves his Gladiator. Now, maybe it's because he's a designer himself and he appreciates the authenticity. But I appreciate it, too, because I've been able to throw some of my stuff in the back and borrow it for a weekend. And what a great car. That Gladiator was like an answer to a question people had been asking for a long time. Getting a pickup truck back in the Jeep line has been a goal of mine for a long, long time. I'm not going to take full credit for it, but I kept this conversation alive a little bit. Sergio was the guy who saw that through. Didn't get to see the final at the end there, but I credit him with greenlighting that program. We had gotten so much customer feedback over the years that the customers wanted a Jeep pickup. To combine it with what's good about a Wrangler was the real magic. And even I, early on, I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to like this thing. 
thing with the doors off and the roof off and all this stuff. It kind of looked like an airport service vehicle to me or something. <laughs> uh, it was wrong. And I'll freely admit that I've had two gladiators. There's something special about it. I didn't know I needed a pickup truck in my life that much, honestly. Until you get one, you don't know how much you need it. Yeah, I really dig the gladiator. And honestly, it wasn't an easy thing for us when that was in clay. It's got a bit of an awkward proportion to me. It's long, it's got a little wheelbase, and it just felt a little weird. And it's all about the tires. Once guys get them out and they start putting the right tires on, they proportion out. I really dig the car now, but there was some doubt in my mind as we were going forth with that. Because I would rather it be probably for me a smaller cab, but of course those don't sell. It's got to be four-door cab. People ask all the time, like, are you going to make a two-door gladiator? I say, yeah, they're all two doors on both sides. <laughs> Give them away. But I was just in Moab, as you know, for a week. And I think last time we were out there in 19, the vehicles knew we had the only ones there. This year, it was just a gobs and gobs of them. There was there's a ton of them out there. They're being accepted well into our, our alpha male crowd, the guys out there that do all kinds of crazy stuff with them. So you got some beautiful colors out there. Really good stuff, good earth tones, non-metallics. I mean, really attractive. It's just right. Who decides all that stuff? Well, first off, thanks for noticing. <laughs> we have a really great color department and I have a super good relationship with them. My opinion on Wrangler, and we used to just use the same colors that we used on chargers and pickup trucks and stuff like that. When I got hold of the brand, I'd always been frustrated by color personally. And I believe that a Wrangler can wear just about any color we could put on it. In its basic form, half of the vehicle is black, the roof, the fender flares, it's got big tires, bumpers and stuff. So you weren't really painting that much. We have tried several different colors. I get beat up all the time. People are like, why don't you bring in a good green? Like we've had 14 greens. <laughs> um, you're just not paying attention. And the other thing we did a few years ago consciously was we started putting in these more, I call them the vinyl siding collection, but they're more muted grays and greens and stuff like that. I'll set out with the really wild colors, right? greens and yellows and oranges and stuff like that. I'll tell you a funny story. We had a color, it's it's out of production now, but it was turquoise we brought back. We had a, a walkthrough with Sergio and my boss, Ralph, and we were going to show that color. And we had it on a, on a Renegade, which I think it's still on a Renegade. Sergio says, what the hell is this? I said, well, it's, you know, Ralph told me, he, he says, well, Mark's going to tell you about this because he thought he, there was a beat down coming. So I walked <laughs> up, it's a new color. He says, well, I wouldn't drive that. I said, well, I, I probably wouldn't either, sir, but our customers, I think, will really go for this, this sort of jewel tone color. He agreed kind of reluctantly. And we know that we have a, a giant female population that buys Wranglers. And then he says, well, what's the name? I said, it's called Bikini. <laughs> yeah, thought, there you go. Fantastic. And it was named after the islands, of course. Of course, of course. We try to do a lot of colors rapidly. We put them in for a short amount of time. You'll saturate the purple Jeep market in about two weeks. We know that. Some of the other vehicles, the colors will stay for longer. But my marketing people will tell me it's important to put a new color in, but it's just as important to take it out. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Welcome to Life Done Better. Listen to the weekly episodes where supermodel and health coach Jill DeYoung talks to some of the world's most inspiring women in health and wellness. It's the place for all the unicorns who strive to create a life on their own terms. Join us to explore, discover, and create a life done better together. Listen and subscribe from Kurt Co. Media, media for your mind. 
We're back with Mark Allen. Mark, tell us about your career as a designer. How to begin and how do you happen to jump in with Jeep? Well, I can tell you I'm doing exactly what I, I wanted to do. I got my dream job, but I didn't know how to get it. I've been with the company since 94. I finished up, I went to school out here at CCS, College for Creative Studies. I started there in 1990, finished up in 94. And I'll tell you, when I started in 1990, Chrysler was not even on our radar. No one was going to Chrysler. Ford was the place to be and General Motors later on. But 1992, 93, Tom Gale had really elevated Chrysler design. And by the time I finished up, that was the only place I wanted to go. And I wanted to work for Tom Gale which I, I got to do. When I started in 1994, I was lucky enough to get a job at Chrysler. I was the only one to do so that year in my class. They put me in a studio called Jeep Truck Packaging, Advanced Packaging. I moved from there into truck and then back to Jeep and then truck and back to Jeep. And at some point, I just stayed in Jeep and I haven't left there since. It wasn't where I wanted to go, but and I just didn't know that. But I really kind of fell for the brand. It's got a hold of me and looks like I'm going to stay there for my career, which is fine for me. I got to come clean. The very first vehicle I ever drove in my life was a Jeep. My dad had a flat fender Jeep with a 327 Chevy in it. And oh, yeah. We, I grew up in the Portland, Oregon area. And we used to go to the dunes and I didn't know that was going to be the destiny, but I'm happy that's where it ended up. The DNA got picked up and laced in real early on and nothing you could do to shake it. Jeep's actually one of those brands that nobody can seem to shake either. I mean, let's face it, Nash, Rambler, AMC, Jeep Eagle. I mean, Jeep has been on the butt end of some pretty bad deals. And then it all of a sudden turns out to be the goose that lays the golden egg, man. Again, when I started at Chrysler, we sold our base entry-level vehicles were sold by Dodge and Plymouth at that time. And then the luxury vehicles were sold by Chrysler through us. Jeep had three vehicles. When I started, there was the Wrangler, the Cherokee, and the newly introduced Grand Cherokee. Here we are a number of years later, and you buy your entry-level vehicle from us, and you buy <laughs> your premium-level vehicle from us. It's been a good turn of events. We were lucky because we're an SUV-only brand, and SUVs continue to rise in popularity. In fact, I was just recently out of state and I rented a car and I hadn't been in a car for a, a while. You just start to realize that what a pain in the butt it is to drive a car around anymore because everything is tall and you're sort of at the bottom of a canyon. Just raising the eye position relative to your seating position is the magic. We saw that with minivans, honestly, early on. People liked sitting up a little bit higher and we were still right. trying, as the design community, tried to push the car down farther farther and get you laid out. But minivan changed that. And then there was a movement kind of mid 90s and it was called tall car. And tall car was really just putting you in a chair position. PT Cruiser was our answer to that, elevating the person. So you walk in and out of the car, minivans continued in popularity and SUVs were still sort of truck based things. When SUVs got to more car based and, and probably one of the earliest would be the Toyota RAV4 where they built that honestly out of a Celica or Celica powertrain anyway that really started changing things. And people subconsciously, I think, liked sitting up a little bit higher and having a thing behave more like a car than a truck was the other piece of magic to that. That's really where, where we're at today with CUVs, SUVs, that kind of a thing. Cars that matter wouldn't be complete if we didn't start talking about old cars or cars that matter to you. What are some of your favorites and uh, what's in your garage? My favorite car of all time, and I'll never be able to, to have one, is a Mira. 
Lamborghini Miura. I don't think it was a good car, but I dare you to find one more beautiful than the Miura. Mm -hmm. Pretty unique car. Money, no object. It would be a Miura. I've had cars, I guess, all over the map, but one of my favorites, I had a, a 69 Alfa Romeo GTV, which was a car that I liked looking at more than I liked driving. <laughs> Currently, we're a Jeep family, so we have Jeeps. I have a, a 2001 Wrangler that I'm usually rinsed through cars pretty fast, and a five years is a long time for me to own a, a car. And this car I've had for 18 years, and I'll, I'll never sell it. It means more to me than a Labrador or something like that right oh, now. Oh, that's great. 2008 911, which is kind of a toy car and it goes through more uh, batteries than it does gas, honestly. <laughs> That's the 997, right? Yes. Yeah. I think it's poised to become a very, very seriously collected car in the not too distant future. Kind of the Honda Accord of sports cars. I mean, just it's almost zero maintenance on that car and it just delivers. I never even turn the radio on. I just don't even listen to music when I drive that car. I love it. I'm finishing up a, uh, it was supposed to be a five-year project that turned out to be longer, but I, I've got a, it's a unique, it's a 1973 Javelin AMX. And only because I wanted something in the Camaro Mustang field, but I had to have something different. And I got, I bought this car. I've done some pretty heavy modifications to it and it's pretty cool. I enjoy the most taking it to, uh, and I just got it on the road this last year, taking it to a show and people telling you, hey, they, they don't know what it is, which is and then if they do know what it is, they've got it all wrong. What a great conversation this has been, Mark. I really appreciate your time sharing some of the past, present, and future of Jeep and your time with what has got to be one of the best love brands in the world. Well, thank you. Thanks to Mark Allen, Director, Head of Design for Jeep, for joining us today on Cars That Matter. Come back next time as we continue to talk about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. This episode of Cars That Matter was hosted by Robert Ross, produced by Chris Porter, edited by Chris Porter, theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick, additional music and sound by Chris Porter. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast. I'm Robert Ross, and thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.